you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Those who were once darkness have now become light, and we have become so in the Lord. The epitome of darkness has now become the essence of light in and through the work of Jesus. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, you know, as I listen to your words right there, taken out of context, I, I think that can leave us scratching our heads just a little bit to say, what do you mean I am now light in the Lord? What, what does it mean for a person to become light? Well, I think in that language, in that imagery of darkness and light, we're meant to see something of the radical change that the Lord brings about in those who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. We're meant to understand that we are, we are changed dramatically from the inside out by the work of the Holy Spirit. We were once darkness in our lack of knowledge of God, in our ignorance, and in our rebellion against him. Darkness in our thinking, darkness in our behavior in so many ways. But as God remakes us in Christ, he makes us to be light in our understanding in our behavior, in our impact on those around us. And it's a wonderful image and a wonderful thought. It's such a vivid image. And as I think about switching from darkness to light, there are a couple of different ways that that might be able to happen. There's an instantaneous flip of a switch and a blinding light, or there could be you know, the gradual uh, going from darkness to light. Is one of those kind of more accurate, you think, of what happens in the life of a believer than the other? Well, it's a great question, and it's kind of a both-and thing, I think, as I reflect on it, Steve. So there is, there is an objective reality that changes. When we come to Christ, we are remade. We're, we're new people. That's what the Bible tells us. But we don't live out that new reality perfectly right away. Far from it. There, there is something of the dimmer switch um, to take the image. You know, there is a slow and steady change that takes place, and our lives reflect the light more and more fully and powerfully as the days go by and as the Holy Spirit reshapes us. Well, if you can, open your Bible and join us in the book of Ephesians. We're beginning a message called Living as Children of Light. Here is Jonathan. I have a little bit of a, a fascination with the rise and the fall and sometimes rise again of great cities. And because of that, I've, I've followed the story of Detroit, Michigan with a little bit of interest over the years. A couple of weeks ago, I had to travel through Detroit by air, and I had my first opportunity to fly over the city. I'd never done that before, and it was quite a remarkable sight. I'd read the reports of all the derelict neighborhoods that have been bulldozed as the population has fallen over the decades, but to see those rows of empty lots from the air block after block of vacant lots where bustling communities used to be. It, it was quite something to behold. Word on the street is that Detroit is starting to turn around now. There's hope in the air. For many decades, the great symbol of Detroit's decline had been the abandoned hulk of the great Michigan Central Station, this once grand neoclassical building that symbolized Detroit's wealth and significance. Perhaps some of you even traveled through that train station at one point. Abandoned now for three decades, covered with graffiti, vandalized, filled with rubbish, it's become this kind of eerie symbol of the decline of the city and its hopelessness. 
But a few months ago, Ford Motor Company purchased the building and announced very grand plans to restore it to its former beauty and to make it the very center of a new tech hub that they're going to build in that part of Detroit. And suddenly, this great symbol of decline is going to be a symbol of growth. This symbol of decay is going to be a symbol of renewal. This symbol of despair is going to be a symbol of hope. What is promised anyway, what is pictured in these great plans, is a dramatic and a total transformation. Now, I mentioned that, and it came to mind to me today because our passage this morning is all about a very great transformation, the most dramatic transformation that can ever occur, the transformation that Jesus Christ brings to the heart of the person who turns to him in repentance and faith. Verse 8 is one of the most clear-cut statements in the New Testament concerning the nature and the extent of that transformation. I wonder if you felt the force of it as we read it through. It's easy, actually, to misread this statement in verse 8, and so to mute what is being said there. It's easy to read the verse as meaning that we once lived in darkness, but now live in the light. To read it as implying, perhaps, that we were once filled with darkness, even, and now are filled with lights. But what does it actually say? You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. We were once darkness ourselves. That's how bad things were. That's the natural condition of the human heart apart from Jesus and his saving work. We weren't simply a people affected by the darkness in this world, but we were a people consisting of darkness. Now, that's a pretty sobering assessment of the life that is cut off from God himself, the life that has not been remade through the saving work of Jesus Christ like that crumbling, graffiti-covered, trash-filled building, we epitomized, we symbolized the darkness of this world. But now for the Christian believer, things have changed, and they have changed radically. Those who were once darkness have now become light, and we have become so in the Lord. The epitome of darkness has now become the essence of light in and through the work of Jesus. And just remember what that work was. Jesus, well, he took on himself our darkness, didn't he? He took on himself our sin and our rebellion, the evil things that we have thought and said and done. He became sin for us, the Scriptures tell us. And then he died in our place to pay the price of all that darkness, of all that sin. And as he took on himself our darkness at the cross, in a great exchange, he gave us his light. He gave us his record of moral purity, of sinlessness, of righteousness. And having now sent his Holy Spirit to live within us, we have the pure life of God renewing us from the inside. We were once darkness, says Paul, but now we are light and we are so in him and through him. And because of all that, Paul now says to us, he exhorts us, live as children of light. Live as you are. Live as the people that you have become. Live out that transformation that has taken place in your heart. 
show the fruit of the light within you. That fruit which consists of, Paul tells us, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, in a sense, as we've been seeing over recent weeks, this whole section of Ephesians is really a call to live as we are, to live as the people we have become in Christ. And Paul has quite a lot of quite specific instruction for us as to how to go about doing that. But in our passage this morning, in the section we're looking at today, Paul broadens out his focus from specific practices to look at our larger patterns of life and of thought. And what he does here today is he urges us to develop distinctly Christian instincts and approaches to life. He gives us, as it were, key principles for living transformed lives, for living as children of light. He begins with what is perhaps the broadest principle of them all. He calls us, verse 10, to prove what pleases the Lord. On my newsfeed this week, a headline popped up reading, All the things men think are romantic that actually aren't. Now, I'm afraid I didn't actually bother reading the piece. Maybe I would have done very well to have read it. I don't know. But in any event, the headline kind of got me thinking. It's important in a relationship to know what actually pleases the other person. Maybe a number of wives, even in this room, would be wishing that their husbands could read that article and think it through. Some of us, I guess, might be helped to know that it's not romantic to buy your wife tools for Christmas, those tools you've been wanting for your workshop but couldn't justify spending the money on. It's generally not romantic, I gather, to invite your hockey team over to watch the game and eat pizza on date nights. It's helpful sometimes actually to ask what your spouse views as being romantic, to work at finding out, to observe, to reflect. Well, as much as that is true in a marriage relationship, it's even more so with the Lord. Paul says to us, he calls us to make sure that we know and we find out what is pleasing to him. That term, find out, is quite a rich and interesting word in the original. It means to test and to prove and even to approve of what is good. We test and we prove what is pleasing to the Lord. And having tested and having discovered over time what is pleasing to Him, we learn then to share His judgment, to approve of what He approves of. Over recent years, I've come to really love the book of Proverbs and to appreciate it in a way I've never appreciated it quite before. I'm told that my great-grandfather made a point of reading a chapter of Proverbs every day. He was a, a farmer in England a, a century ago. He had some laborers working for him and land to manage and a business to run and all the rest of it. And he found that the book of Proverbs was essential daily reading. How do I deal with this tough situation with an employee? How do I handle this challenging business dynamic? How do I respond to this dishonesty or to this theft or whatever? Now, Proverbs is wonderful because it shapes a believer's mind and reactions in practical living, in the ordinary business of doing life in God's world, in God's way. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Living as Children of Light. It's part of a larger series from the book of Ephesians called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. 
Now, we're going to get back to this message in just a moment, but I want to let you know if you ever miss a broadcast, you can always come and you can listen through our website. Just come to EncounterTheTruth.org. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Again, it's EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also listen on the go if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That's also free, and you'll find it when you go to your favorite app store and search for Encounter the Truth. Right back to the message. Here is Jonathan. Now, Proverbs is wonderful because it shapes a believer's mind and reactions in practical living, in the ordinary business of doing life in God's world, in God's way. If we would find out what is pleasing to the Lord, we need to soak our minds in his word. But at the same time, we need to be realistic and we need to acknowledge that although God's word gives us the big principles and gives us his outlook, it shows us his character, it shows us his heart, it isn't actually a how-to manual for dealing with the specifics of every situation we will face, every decision we will have to make. You know what it's like, you've got a new gizmo at home and it doesn't seem to be working quite right. You take out the, the owner's manual and you look at the back at that troubleshooting section. You know, if the light is flashing red, you do this. If the light is solid orange, you do this. If the light is flashing green, do this. And your light, well, it's solid yellow. Of course it is. And there's nothing on that list about solid yellow lights. And so you don't know what to do. Your problem has not been addressed. And so you do the only sensible thing you can do. You give up and you go and buy another gizmo and you hope it's going to work this time. We sometimes turn to Scripture, and we hope that it's going to give us a clear-cut answer for our specific situation and for our specific problem. We look for illustrated, step-by-step instructions, but the reality is that Scripture doesn't actually work like that. It's not an exhaustive troubleshooting guide for every situation we may face in life in this world. It is rather a book that tells us about God, that tells us what God is like. And to know what pleases Him, to know what will please Him in a specific situation, it means that we've got to know Him. We need to know Him personally, and we need to know Him well. We need to know how He thinks. We need to know what His heart is like. We need to know what He delights in. And over time, as we come to know him better and better through his word, we come to understand more and more what will please him in a given situation. But there is this process that Paul speaks of. There is this process of testing and proving that takes place to sharpen our understanding. As we live life and we make decisions shaped hopefully by a biblical mind, as we seek to build relationships and care for our family and do our work and complete our school assignments and manage our social interactions, as we seek to do all these things in God's way, we're going to get some things right. Hallelujah. And we're going to see some fruit from doing the right thing. And we'll sense that, yes, this is pleasing to God and this is glorifying to Him. And you know what? We'll also get some things wrong. We will fail and we will sin, and we are going to see some damaging fruit from some bad decisions. And sometimes our conscience, which is damaged by sin, but is still a wonderful gift of God to us, sometimes our conscience will say to us very clearly, you got that wrong, and you need to repent, and you need to seek God's forgiveness for that. 
And as fallen, weak, and sinful people, as we seek to live His way in His world, He's going to teach us, and He's going to show us, and we will develop godly instincts for complex decisions. We will test and we will prove what pleases God. And ultimately, we will come to share His judgments. We will find ourselves approving of what He approves of. Those who love their spouse, well, they want to find out what pleases their spouse, what brings them joy. And inevitably, there will be that birthday or that Christmas where you get it really wrong. That new ironing board didn't quite hit the spot. The new frying pan didn't send the heart a flutter. The value pack of socks didn't quite say, I love you. But hopefully, hopefully, over time, we learn. You deepen your understanding. You develop a kind of instinct. And it's part of growing in that relationship, isn't it? As children of light who love our Heavenly Father, we long to learn and we long to know what's going to please Him, what will delight His heart. And it takes a lifetime of immersing ourselves in His Word and responding to the promptings of His Spirit to fine-tune our various instincts. But it is at the very heart of living as those who are light and not darkness. Living transformed lives, it will mean proving what pleases the Lord. Next, it will mean shining as light in the darkness. Verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless, the empty deeds of darkness, but rather, says Paul, expose them. We all know that certain types of activity flourish in the darkness. Certain crimes happen much more readily at night and are driven into the shadows with the rising dawn. Paul has already highlighted certain categories of behavior that belong in the darkness and not in the light. Certain things that the participants would rather not be seen doing, things like sexual immorality and impurity spoken of back in verse 3. But Paul doesn't even want to dignify those things here by mentioning them by name. He says in verse 12 that it's shameful to speak of what the disobedient do under the cover of darkness. But Paul wants us as a people of light to be very clear that our role is not to put on a cloak of darkness and join in with those shadowy behaviors. No, he wants us to refuse to get involved and instead to shine the light of the gospel onto the situation. We're not to share in the activity, but we are to be a light-giving presence. It's often said that Christians are meant to be or called to be in the world, but not of the world. And I think that's actually quite a good summary of what the New Testament calls us to. I think it captures something of the dynamic here. We will always have a struggle on our hands to navigate engagement with our culture and with our society around us. On one extreme, I think we can be tempted toward disengagement, thinking that the only place of safety is in a kind of evangelical monastery. We kind of create our own safe community. We interact only with Christians. We avoid all compromising influences. We consume only Christian media, and so on and so on. It's a kind of monastic life. At the other extreme, while well, we know that we need to be in the world for the sake of our, our witness, but as we immerse ourselves in the world, we soon compromise with the world. We become so comfortable in the world that we lose all our distinctiveness. And no doubt in any Christian community, any given church, any given believer will tend to lean in one direction or in the other. But Paul sets out for us here a challenging standard. He, he doesn't give us the details, but he gives us a principle 
And the principle is this. Don't participate in the deeds of darkness. Don't live as the world lives. But at the same time, shed light on the deeds of darkness. Be there. Be there and not somewhere else, but be there as an utter contrast. Don't disappear from the world. Don't retreat. Don't shun the very presence of the ungodly. No, be present, but be present as a light. And as you live in that utterly distinctive way, your lifestyle and your character and your godliness, those things will shine the light of the gospel into the situation and they will show up on godly behaviors for what they are, for ugliness and darkness and sin. And for some who are living in darkness and see the shining light of a believer's life, for some, that witness is going to highlight for them the true nature of their lives and their behavior. And it's going to open a door for the gospel. Some will see the light of a believer's life and will be so moved to respond that they will indeed take up that call of verse 14. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. For others, of course, the believer's life of light, it will be a rebuke, but it will ultimately only serve to harden the darkened heart. It's going to produce a response. It's going to provoke a response, perhaps an angry response, but it's not going to lead to life. But the call for us, it is this call to live distinctive lives, lives of light, and to live them in the midst of darkness. Navigating that is a very, very hard thing to do. I expect we all struggle with it and we have to grapple with it. It's hard to know how to be there, to be present in such a society, to know and to be known, to understand the culture and to be aware of what's going on, to participate genuinely in the life of the community, but to do so without participating in the deeds of darkness. Now, that is a challenge if ever there was a challenge for the believer. And it's worth just acknowledging that each one of us will navigate that situation in slightly different ways. And we'll need to be gracious with one another as perhaps we'll make some different choices about how to do that. And as we seek to do it with integrity and godliness before the Lord. But that's our calling. That's what it means to be light in the Lord. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called Living as Children of Light. We've been looking primarily at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, reminding us that we were once in darkness, but now we are light. What does that look like? We're going to continue to dive into this passage of Scripture next time. Hope you make it a point to tune in. If you ever miss a broadcast, or you maybe want to go back and listen to each and every program again, you can always do that by coming to our website, it's EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is listener-supported. That's exactly what it sounds like. We depend on your generosity to keep this program on this station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Out of the Storm. It's all about grappling with God in the book of Job. And Jonathan, what was the reason that you picked this book as our way of saying thanks? 
Well, really two reasons. One is that I have a real confidence in the author of this book. Christopher Ashe is a friend of mine, has been a mentor to me, and he's a very wonderful Bible teacher. And I know that in this book, and I've I've read it and engaged with it, benefited from it personally, I know there is rich insight into the Word of God. And I, I just feel so confident sharing that with others. Uh, the, the other reason is the theme, the subject matter. The focus of the book is the Bible book of Job, which concerns itself with the hard reality of human suffering. And I am very conscious that for many listeners right now, suffering will be a reality that you're walking through at the present time, and you're asking, how do I make sense of this? How do I navigate it? How do I understand God's purposes within this? And the book of Job, of course, doesn't answer all our questions, but it it does teach us to walk with God through suffering and to look to the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered in our place. And so I I think this book is going to be a real help and a real practical encouragement to many people. Well, we'd love to send you a copy as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. To give a gift online, come visit our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 833-998-7884. That might be easier to remember as 833-99-TRUTH, or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For producer Mark Brenna and our Bible teacher Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.